Morning, church. Not quite bitter yet. We're still working on it here. Either that or God has just seen fit to give me some timber in my voice. You know, maybe that will help my preaching this morning. Would you bow in prayer with me? Our Father, we do ask that your voice would be the one we hear. That your Holy Spirit would bring life to your living word. Drive it deep into our hearts. Cause it to germinate into real transformation. God, we don't want to leave here thinking ourselves right with you based upon our acts or our efforts. Neither do we want to leave here complacent and passive about the mighty grace that we have received through your son Jesus. So Lord, uh, there's a needle to thread there, so to speak. We want to be changed. We want to be changed by you. We want to enact good deeds of righteousness and holiness. We want to serve our community of faith and the unbelieving world around us. We want to be light, salt and light for this world. But we don't want it to come just simply from human effort, but rather from a spirit that is prompting us to be what you have called us to be. So guide us in those ways, Lord. Help us to understand now your word as we study it together. We pray that all that we do this morning would be a continual act of praise and worship, for you are worthy. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who makes it possible. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we're continuing in on the Sermon on the Mount, our third week in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus was pretty good. He got it all in in mm, 15 minutes. I, however, am on week three. So that's kind of how that goes. A few weeks back, President Trump announced uh, his controversial ban on immigrants from certain countries. You might have heard about this. Uh, And of course, there was a lot of outrage that was expressed, especially in social media. Uh, Demonstrations across the country uh, where people voiced their anger and disagreement. And one of those demonstrations was at the University of Washington, actually in the library. You may have heard about this. It happened just a couple hours after the announcement where a crowd of protesters came into the library with a bullhorn. I don't know if we have any librarians in here this morning, but you're not supposed to do that. It's a whisper zone. And um, after a few minutes, there was an Asian student who was in the library and he came up and tried to get their attention and eventually confronted them, got the protesters' attention, amazingly, and, um, and then said to them confidently in broken English, hey, this is library. And the protesters actually were silenced. And the Asian man, feeling as though he had done his job, then walked off. On his way leaving, one of the protesters... Uh, yelled a racial slur out to him and said, hey, go back to Beijing. Which, of course, is an absolute act of hypocrisy considering the cause for which they were protesting. Now, I really, truly am not taking sides on the ban or the protest or anything like that. I really, really am not. You guys know me well enough to know that's not my angle here. But I thought, here we see from our own headlines 
the same kind of issue that Jesus is confronting in our text this morning, which you find in your title, Hypocritical Piety. Where one is grandstanding on the importance of an issue or a value and projecting that value with public outrage while personally denying the very essence of what they're advocating for in their own practice. Hypocritical piety. Uh, Let me give us a little context for those who maybe haven't been with us the last couple of weeks. Again, we're on the third week in Sermon on the Mount. The first week we looked at uh, (coughs) the reality of the kingdom of God. And we looked at what uh, are commonly known as the the Beatitudes, or as I've suggested, they ought to be called the Begladitudes. The assurance for those who find themselves in the kingdom of God through repentance and through faith are blessed, not because of their present circumstances, but in spite of their present circumstances, because they stand securely in the kingdom of God. Therefore, if they are poor in spirit, they're still blessed. If they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're still blessed. If they're meek, If they're persecuted, whatever the case may be, they're still blessed because they stand secure in the kingdom of God. And it's not their present circumstances which produce their blessing. It's their position in Christ which gives them blessing in spite of any circumstances. And this is what I preached from the Beatitudes there. And then secondly, we looked at Jesus kind of giving what we called his halakha, right? This uh, Hebrew word we've talked about. Where he gives, in a sense, his discipleship curriculum, his interpretation of the law. How is it that the law has bearing on our lives? And he taught uh, that he did not come to abolish the law in some of the ways that the religious leaders had. Either by lowering the bar for its application or adding unnecessary steps to. Jesus upheld the law as it was and then fulfilled it by living it out perfectly for us. We saw that what Jesus is after is not just an outwardly wooden application of the law in our lives, but an inwardness of it, that it would be internalized, that we ourselves would be transformed such that we would naturally do the things that are asked of us from the law. And now we turn to the third part here of the sermon, where Jesus uh, focuses on some practices of prayer, of fasting, And what is often referred to as almsgiving, or giving to the poor. And he really shows us how this is to be done. There are good deeds that are to flow from sincere faith. But Jesus helps us to see how we are to go about doing this. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to condemn that prideful self-righteousness, that public piety that is hypocritical of doing good works simply to be seen by man, but not really motivated by a love for God. And so Jesus will teach us to guard against this, and you're going to see again and again what he tells us to practice is secrecy in our good deeds and reminds us that the all-seeing eye of God rewards those who righteously serve him quietly. And so that's the big point this morning. The all-knowing God rightly rewards his people. Okay, So if you need to tune out for the rest of the time, I'm just going to be dressing up that point. Notice the repetition that we see here, this one phrase, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Just plant that seed and watch how often it's repeated as we move through. So Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful. Not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. 
If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Can I just pause right there and say, can you imagine? I mean, really, the trumpet being sounded, everybody gather around, I'm about to give. Just, it's a real picture of a real practice. It's not just a phrase. Uh, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, first point's not that hard, is it? In fact, there's going to be some painfully obvious points as we work through this sermon. Give in secret. Give in secret. The question that came to mind as I was thinking about this was, is giving to the needy assumed here? I mean, the passage says, when you give to the needy. It, it seems to be assumed. And so I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Uh, giving to the needy and to the vulnerable has been a long-standing practice in Christianity. <clears throat> Probably even more in the first century than in present day. In the first century and in centuries prior to that, uh, the poor really did not have some of the community safety nets that we have today. Uh, such as welfare or social security or food stamps or these kinds of things. But it was largely up to the community of faith to be that safety net for the poor and impoverished and vulnerable around them. Uh, and so, in fact, it's interesting, when Israel was just sort of forming up of a na- as a nation, having come out of Egypt, having been delivered by the Lord, they were instructed, even in the harvesting of their crops, to leave portions behind, to leave margins specifically for the poor. Uh, if you want to turn to, in fact, Deuteronomy 24, I'll read a passage for you. And the next one will come to Leviticus. We call you know, Leviticus, of course, the white pages of our Bible because you know, our fingers have never touched the edge of the page, so they're all crisp and perfect. You, know. you may be even separating the gold glint you know, on the edge of your... Deuteronomy 24, 17, it says this, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I commanded you to do this. And then again in Leviticus 23, verse 22. It says this, and this is somehow, this is an even, even better picture for me than the passage I just read. But when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor, for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. And so what we see here is that throughout the history of faith, God has instructed his people to live with a margin in what they Uh, take in. And that's not just because it's Dave Ramsey wise here, okay? The living with a margin was that we might be generous and that we might give to those who do not have. 
And that is built right into the ethos of the people of God from early on. It is an ethic of the Christian church, a prevailing ethic. Secondly, we see, I'm going to move this out of my way here because if I push the wrong button, it's really going to be a distraction. Secondly, we see here that hypocritical clarity was being done for show. Or hypocritical charity was being done for show. Uh, and so what we find here is that this seemingly selfless act of right, giving for the poor, giving to the poor, you know, on the one hand, it seems like I really care about their plight and I know that they need something and I have something to give, so I'll give it to them. And yet the whole posture of doing it in a public way and a display and calling attention to oneself and doing it is such at odds with the spirit of the gift itself, isn't it? One postures themselves as I am for you, and yet in the act of it, withdrawing public attention, they're saying, I really am for me. I want you all to know how good I am in this particular gesture. And so what we find here is, again, this really is a show. And we've, we've talked a few, uh, recently a few times here about how the Lord feels about these empty shows. It's a great passage in Amos 5. I hate all your shows. The Lord is not fooled by these outward gestures. He knows our hearts. And so I thought it would be interesting to kind of think about, well, what about us? Are there ways that our own giving, our own personal giving, is done with some kind of deceitful or self-serving motivation? Uh, Maybe you don't sound the trumpet, when you give, I haven't really heard one go off in here at giving time. Um, but maybe there are some more subtle ways that your own heart isn't fully in it, or it's done in a self-serving kind of manner. <coughs> so let me propose a couple of um, thoughts for you. When you give, consider the condition of your heart. Do you expect something in return? Is it a deposit on some kind of expectation? Do we think it elevates our standing with the Lord or with the church or somehow improves the Lord's opinion of us? Gifts today, charitable gifts, are tax write-offs. We know that and we appreciate that. I think it's perfectly appropriate. In fact, I think uh, it's, it's quite a lot of hubris to tax what one gives to the Lord, just to put it in those terms. But on the other hand, is the tax write-off driving the gift? Or is gratitude for the Lord what is driving the gift? Uh, Do you expect some sort of status or plaque or inscription? I was recently at an orchestra performance, and I was kind of flipping to the back of the brochure, and there is in the back a list of donors and different levels You can be the platinum giver if you gave above this threshold. And I thought actually there was quite a beautiful contrast between the way that the world gives charitably and the way the church is to give charitably. No lists, no thresholds, no plaques, no inscriptions. No one's name goes on anything in this church except the Lord's name. And so I I hope you enjoy, I hope you know the joy of anonymous giving. Whether it is an envelope of cash given to someone who is in need uh, or some 
a, a coffee card given to someone for encouragement quietly. This last week, I was uh, ministering to somebody. I was in their home visiting, and they wouldn't let me leave without a carton of eggs because they do chickens. And it was just sweet. I came to minister, and they just wouldn't let me leave without refreshing me in, in this, this quiet, simple way. And now I've announced it to everybody. I guess their reward is gone. Sorry about that. <laughs> One of my favorite memories in worship wasn't... Um, Actually, it wasn't here, sorry. Uh, it was probably 20 years ago, and uh, I was reminded of it this week, but we were in a small church up in, I think it was Paul's boat, it was kind of in North Washington on the coast, and um, there was a mom, uh, who young mom, who walked in the service with her daughter in hand, and they were there a few minutes earlier. We were there on a ministry trip, and there was probably about 30 or 40 of us on this ministry trip, and we really doubled the size of the, the uh, congregation when we showed up. So we were kind of conspicuous. But nevertheless, this young mom and her daughter uh, came to church with flowers they had picked on the way, either from their own garden or from someone else's garden. I don't know. <laughs> but they came in and walked down the center aisle, and they positioned the flowers in a little vase that was up front, and then they went and sat down for worship. And sincerely, I thought, I could go home right now, sermon over. That was sweet. That was pure, simple, heartfelt worship. And it was really beautiful. And I would just remind all of us that no public acclaim can match the joy of a gift given in secret. Now, Jesus seems to move on here, not just talking about the public acclaim, but now he seems to move into sort of the condition of our own heart. How do we feel ourselves about our secret gift? He goes on to, I think, caution us to avoid any sense of self-righteousness. So this is interesting to me because, again, Jesus started with sort of the outward show, but now he seems to caution us to be careful about our deeds being seen by others. He seems to caution the individual about their own heart and how they think about themselves, how we think about ourselves. This phrase here, don't let your left hand know, what your right hand is doing. Now we're dealing with the internal dialogue, right? Not just the outward look at us, but now we're dealing with how we feel about what we've done. We're dealing with our own heart. It's kind of the flip side of this this gesture of giving. And the caution here is to guard against an attitude of self-righteousness. And I want to tell you this. I am learning more and more that an attitude of self-righteousness is very prevalent, especially within the church. Uh, and I don't exclude myself from that. Uh, I think there are a lot of ways that we think our standing rests in what we have done and not what God has done for us. Um, In fact, I think it might be a very interesting question for you for personal introspection and for reflection to ask yourself, in what ways might you be prone to attitudes of self-righteousness? And so I'm going to propose three particular categories to maybe do a little bit of a personal audit on this. The first is this. Perhaps you may be inclined to be self-righteous because of what you know. 
because of what you know. And I'm going to tell you right now, I think, I'm just trying to be honest and transparent here, I think if there was, of the three categories I'm going to bring forward, I think this is the one that I might be more, most susceptible to. I think one way that I, I'm just, just trying to lay this out here, I think one of the ways that I can be tempted to pat myself on the back is because of things that I might know. Um, I have been incredibly blessed by the Lord to grow up in a Christian home. I was able to go to a Christian school. I was able to go to a great college and get great instruction. I've been able to learn from godly men and women here at the church and continue education. And by God's grace, I have a lot of of knowledge of the scriptures and, and whatnot. And I know a lot about your personal lives. I know you guys. And there are times when, if I'm honest with you, I can, I can think too highly of myself because of what I know, either theologically or even relationally or organizationally. And I can think myself sort of alone on an island for what I know. And it's a temptation for me to be self-congratulatory or to think somehow it improves my standing with the Lord because of what I know. So maybe that's a category of temptation for you towards self-righteousness. Let me give you two others. What about because of what you do? Maybe you're a very active, magnanimous person. The temptation for you then is to think, I have good standing with the Lord because of what I have done. Or maybe the third category would fit you because of what you haven't done or don't do. You know the old expression, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. And so maybe you feel like, well, you know, I haven't committed the sins that that person commits, and I'm not tempted like they're tempted. Man, I've heard some of Eric's stories, and that's not me. And so you think, I'm doing pretty good. Standing with the Lord, all right. And so maybe self-righteousness is a temptation because of what you think you haven't done. But the reality for all of us as Christians is that we stand securely in the family of God based upon his grace and his mercy alone. And that is where we stand. And anything we try to add to that by way of improving our standing or our status is an example of self-righteousness. You cannot increase the Father's love for you. You cannot increase your security in his family by your performance. We stand securely based upon the performance of Christ and his fulfillment of the law and his righteousness which is transferred to our account through repentance and faith. We are to do good deeds. We are to let our light shine, but our motivation is to be one of gratitude, one of earning. And the problem, I think, for many Christians is this, that we enter into the family of God, we enter into this relationship with Christ, uh, we enter in through faith, we enter in through repentance, through the truth of the gospel. The problem is we don't continue to live in the truth of the gospel, we walk through that doorway and then we're in the family of God and then somehow we make this switch and we begin to now turn it into a performance-driven spirituality. And the truth of the matter is this, that we have to continue. The, the, the gospel of grace is not just the starting point of the Christian journey, but it is the stream that we have to continually abide in. We continue to stand secure with the Lord because of his continual grace. And so we have to be cautious not to descend into these attitudes of self-righteousness expressed in some of these outward shows. 
Look with me in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to the Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, (coughs) your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Well, the point is simple here again. Pray in secret. Uh, And if you haven't quite picked up on it yet here, uh, to this disease of self-righteousness, And hypocritical piety, Jesus the great physician continues to prescribe the same medicine, which is secrecy. Again and again. The word that's given here uh, for go into your room, actually, uh, and and I think the King James translates it the very best, it translates it closet. It's go into your inner room, not just, you know, your bedroom or something like that, but the room within the room, so to speak. Uh, and I was reading this passage, and it, and it brought up a memory for me uh, from about, well, from college days. I, I won't do the math. Um, but it was my freshman year in college, and um, our room was filthy, and I was going to vacuum it. So I went down to the end of the hall to the, to the closet to, re- to retrieve the vacuum that we had in the dorm room, and I opened the door uh, only to find a man curled up in the bottom of the closet, and anytime you find, you know, a body where you're expecting to find an animate object, it's scary, okay? And so I opened the door and, yeah, you know, there's a person. And very quickly, this, and actually the person happened to be my RA. His name was John. And so I opened the door to find John curled up on the bottom of the floor and I'm looking at him and he very quickly uncoils and looks at me and says, I'm not doing anything wrong. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at him and I'm starting, the math is starting to add up, and I'm thinking, he's in the closet, he's in a praying position, he's praying. Oh, no doubt he's come across this passage in his devotional reading, and has moved in his heart to actually do this in a literal way, to go into the closet and to secretly pray, and now I've discovered him. So this is, you know, just happening like that. And you, you know, you, you find a guy curled up in the bottom of a closet, and for me, the instinct is strong to tease him, you know, right? But it's hard to tease a guy who's praying and doing what the word says. So I just closed the door and said, see you later, John. <laughs> we'll vacuum later. But uh, it just came to mind as I was rereading this. The instruction here is that our prayer is to be heard by God, not to be seen by man. And I was kind of thinking about this as it relates to public prayer because, you know, let's be honest, I pray publicly a lot. And uh, I was almost wondering, would Jesus say the same thing to our culture today or would his counsel have a little different spin to it? Because, well, let's be honest, there's not an awful lot of public prayer in public life today. 
I wonder if he wouldn't might actually like to see more of it. I don't know. That was just my musing this week. But, but in any case, whether it is somebody here leading in public prayer, or whether it is you at the dinner table, or praying with your children before bed, or whatever the case might be, our prayers are always to be directed Godward. We are seeking the ear of God and not the eye of man. And I think as we look through the scriptures, some of the the prayers that we find there that move our hearts the most are some of these quiet, secret prayers. Pastor Josh introduced the service, opened the service with the, the story of Hagar, who in her distress, in her flight from Abraham and Sarai because of their misuse, and she found herself alone, sitting under the tree, and she cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard her. And answered her prayer. And so she conferred upon the Lord the name El Roy, which means the God who sees me. It was her private prayer of distress. And it was heard. Or Daniel, the man of prayer. Right? We've, we went through this whole book. We looked at Daniel, this praying man whose consistency in prayer was actually known communally such that that's how they would trap him. So disciplined was he in the act of his prayer. And after reading the scriptures and, and coming across the words of the prophet Jeremiah and, and, and realizing that the 70 years of captivity was coming to a close, he began to pray that God would in fact deliver the people back to Jerusalem. And God did. And Jesus himself was one. Here he's teaching about how we are to pray publicly, but he himself was one who regularly withdrew from the crowds and went in dependence to his heavenly Father and prayed. If there's ever a testimony or a case that we need private times of prayer to come to the Lord, if Jesus did that, and if I could say needed to do that, then how much more so do we need to do that? To retreat from the noise of the world and the eyes of men and come secretly to our Father who hears us. The other thing Jesus teaches here is this, that longer prayer is not better prayer. <clears throat> and that simple is best. In fact, in just a, a couple of verses, uh, in chapter 7, Jesus is going to encourage persistence in prayer. But even there, he sort of hedges against lengthy prayer. I mean, we are to continue to be in a posture of prayer, praying regularly and praying consistently. But we're not to simply, as he cautions here, go babbling on and on and on and on and on. In fact, the the word that is translated here, the Greek word that's translated here, is, uh, boy, it's going to take me a minute to pronounce this one, baralogeo. And it's a great word. It's translated really well for us in the English. We have it translated babbling because it is an onomatopoetic word. It's a word whose pronunciation sounds like its meaning, like the word bang or whisper. And the word that Jesus uses there is this badalogeo, and it's been beautifully translated for us as babbling on because it sounds like what one does, which is just the repetition of, of meaningless, filler, mindless words. And so I want to kind of get at us a little bit with this and ask you to consider your own prayers and what they might sound like. I don't think many of us go out to the courtyard and babble on with long prayers, but I would tell you, I think here is where many of us might be susceptible 
to praying improperly. It is, again, it is the filling in of our prayers with intensifiers, mindless words, common phrases that may have good meaning. They just have lost it for us because we repeat them in empty fashion. So I've given you some examples. And I brought this, actually, I asked if Daniel would bring this for me, and he did. You've seen this before. This is the taboo buzzer. I had to move this because I have my slide clicker here and my taboo buzzer, and I thought if I hit the taboo buzzer when I mean to hit the slide, that's going to be a problem. But what if, what if we had a list of taboo words in prayer? What if we tried to strip all of those empty phrases that you tack on and stack onto your prayer to give it some sense of, you know, sanctimony? And we pulled them all off. And we stripped it down to raw speech between you and the Lord. Here's some phrases we might have to remove. See, now i got to hit the right button. I'm all confused. Andrew, could you pause that there? Is that possible? Now, anything wrong with any of these phrases? No. Not in and of themselves. But what if they're said without any cognition as to what we're saying? What if we would address Father God consistently, mindlessly, and just pepper our prayers with this phrase over and over and over and over again? That we tack in Jesus' name onto the end of every sermon because it's somehow a magical incantation that takes it to the Lord's ear. Or are we praying in a fashion that is in fact for the name of Jesus? So what if we were praying and somebody was sitting there buzzing our empty words? Isn't that terrible? That's going to ring for a while. When we were just babbling on. The Lord doesn't want to hear our empty, mindless words. He wants us to come to him as the person that he is. If I were to simply repeat a a list of common phrases to my wife and not talk with her directly and truly interact with her, she would be offended and rightfully so. Our God is a person. Three persons, one God. Do we come to our tripersonal God in that manner? We find in the Psalms, I think, some of the best examples of prayer. And we find in those prayers, honesty, emotion, complaint, lament, request. They're direct and they're honest. And God has preserved those prayers in the Psalms by way of saying, these are prayers that your forerunners have prayed ahead of you, and they please me, and I encourage you to pray in this fashion. And Jesus also gives us a prayer, and I want to caution us in this too, which is Jesus tells us to pray thus, not to pray this. Okay? Because we could take this prayer and make it again an empty, mindless prayer of just babbling on. He is rather giving us guidance in prayer. And so let's just notice a couple aspects of it. The address, our Father. Yes, it is a good phrase. 
but what it should communicate to us is that we're coming personally to one who loves us and to, is there to protect us and care and to concern himself for us. And so it's not just a mindless word that we get to pepper throughout our prayer, but it is to instruct us to the nature of our personal God. Hallowed be their na- your, your name. It means that our prayer is not just for us, but it is we are for the name and the glory of God. He is holy. It's also kingdom-oriented. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We go to God in prayer, not simply with a list of things we want him to do for us. We go to God in prayer because we want to align our hearts with his heart and be about his kingdom. And so we pray such. It's also humble. How many times is our prayer, Lord, just give me a win in Powerball because the amount is really big right now. We want the windfall of some kind. But the humble prayer is, Lord, give me what I need for today, my daily bread. And the prayer is filled with contrition. Forgive us. Forgive us. We live humbly before our God. And so again, this prayer is given to give shape to our prayers and guidance. He has not given us a magical incantation here. The power, friends, the power of our prayer is not in the words, but in the person whom we're addressing, if we're addressing him at all. You'll hear people say all the time, prayer is powerful. God is powerful. And when we go to him in prayer, we're asking for his help. Verse 14 says this, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I think the point here is this, that the proof of forgiveness is forgiving uh, this is, I think, one of, definitely one of those record scratch moments in the sermon. Okay? I imagine the crowd of people sitting around listening to Jesus. And as he's teaching, they're probably like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, we probably shouldn't sound the horn when we give our money. That's probably good. Yeah, this is good. That's good. Oh, that's helpful. Thanks, Jesus. And then I think he gets to this point about if you don't forgive others, your father won't forgive you. And I think people are probably going, yeah. Sorry, what was that? Did you say that right? Did you mean to say something else? And even as we look at the scriptures, we frequently find Jesus using the, the, uh, the rhetorical device of hyperbole where he kind of overstates something to grab people's attention. And I imagine they were going, is this hyperbole or do you mean this? And I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus means this. Now we see it elsewhere as well later on in the Gospel of Matthew <coughs> where he uses a parable to even press the point further. But I think what he is saying here, essentially the heart of this teaching is this. If we are unable to forgive other people their sins and their offenses, and we're unable to extend grace and mercy to them, and somehow we feel righteous in holding that back, then what is really revealed is that we ourselves have not truly understood the forgiveness and the grace of God which has been extended to us. Which is a way of saying this. If we haven't really understood the grace and the forgiveness of God extended to us, then we haven't really understood the gospel. Meaning we haven't really laid a hold of which those things are achieved. If we can't forgive others, we are verifying that we ourselves have not grasped on to the life raft that God has given to us. And so it is a self-incriminating act. And later in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will accompany this same kind of teaching with forgiveness with the parable of the unmerciful servant who has been forgiven a modest debt by the king but cannot extend to someone else, or excuse me, has been forgiven an enormous debt by the king but cannot extend to someone else 
a very modest forgiveness. And so the king leaves him on hook with his debt. I think Jesus means this. If we truly understand what has been forgiven us, we will have the ability to forgive others. And so the proof of forgiveness is forgiving. We come to our last one here. Fast in secret. Fast in secret. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. This is oil on your head is by way of looking good, okay, in in the cultural expression here. This isn't motor oil, you know, this is... And wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting here is a practice to promote prayer and repentance. And I want to tell you this. I'm still learning about fasting. Um, For a long time, I have understood fasting as a way to introduce discomfort to our bodies by not eating, to create an internal longing, to feel those pains of of hunger, to draw our attention to persist in prayer. That has been my longstanding understanding of fasting, and I, I think that's right. I think it's just a little incomplete, and I'm still working on this. Because as I read the scriptures more and more, I find fasting in conjunction with repentance. And so I think it's more than that. I think in the same way that we would use our bodies as tools by creating a hunger to drive us to prayer, I think there are times when the body is also used as a tool deprived of food for a season to even increase, to to create a discomfort to facilitate repentance. To, To almost say, in the same way I'm trying to create hunger for the Lord, I'm trying to create discomfort for sin. Now, I'm still sort of working some of this out in my own study, in my own life, but... It seems to me that that's what fasting was to be used for. But again, whatever all it was, it was too frequently distorted and used again for, pers- for personal, uh, instead of for personal praise, for public praise. And I, I, I would liken it to the flopping of a soccer player. You watch the soccer match and, of course, the ball and players are combining and one gets maybe tripped, maybe not and falls to the ground as though to their death. And the game stops, and everybody crowds around, and cards are given, and they've embellished what may or may not even have happened. And in the same way, fasting is like Christian flopping. Fasting in public, fasting for attention. And so again, to to the same kinds of outward acts of piety, hypocritical piety, Jesus prescribes the same medicine, secrecy. And so I want to close with this illustration. We've done a lot of what it isn't. But may I close with a picture of what it is. As Christians, we really want to be like windows. Windows. That people would see through us and in us see the light and the beauty and the glory of Christ. When we look at a window, we don't stare at the glass. We look through the glass to see what is beyond. And we want to be that. We want to be a lens through which the light and the beauty and the glory of Christ shines out of. And that when people see it, they peer and look into. But we're just a lens through which these gazes pass. But the look doesn't rest upon us. 
We want people to see Christ in us, and they want, we want people to see the, Christ, the beauty and the light of Christ flowing out of us. But we don't want to be the thing seen. We're a lens through which to display our glorious Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to be, to, to be reminded of your grace and your mercy in our lives. We tell ourselves the truth that you have changed us from the inside out. It's your work that is being done. God, may our acts of good deeds, our generosity, our prayer, our fasting, our service, may they be secret service. May they be done and rendered unto you. And may we renounce any sense of self-righteousness in these things. God, help us to be window panes through which the light of Christ is visible. Protect us from ourselves, Lord, and can help us to continue to see your glory and to not promote our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.